Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can find more information about the podcast at twoguystothedarktowercame.com. You can also email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. In this episode, we'll cover Hearts in Atlantis, parts 1 through 22, which is found in Hearts in Atlantis. Let's start the show. Set in 1966, Hearts in Atlantis is told by University of Maine freshman Pete Riley. Pete and the rest of the boys in his dormitory, save for Pete's roommate Nate and Stokely Jones, a disabled student, become obsessed with playing the card game Hearts to the detriment of their grades. At the same time, Pete is becoming more politically aware as the war in Vietnam escalates. Pete falls in love with his fellow work-study student, Carol Gerber, who is involved in student protests. Pete realizes if he continues playing hearts, he may be kicked out of school and lose his student deferment from the draft. Greetings, constant listeners. Want to support the show? Check out our Patreon page to learn how you can access exclusive content. We've set up three patron levels, Apprentice, Gunslinger, and Cotet. Each level provides rewards as a thank you from us to you. Find out more information at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Thanks again for being a loyal listener. Jay, we're starting a new story. Mm -hmm. This story, unlike... Low Men in Yellow Coats does not have direct connections to the Dark Tower series. Although as we get into our Dark Tower thinny section later in this episode, we'll make a couple of connections. But we wanted to continue with the rest of the stories in this book. And I really enjoy the first half of this book a lot, even though, or the first half of the story a lot, even though it isn't directly Dark Tower related. Yeah, I was thinking about that earlier today that this is just a great story. Set it aside from The Dark Tower or anything else King has written. It's a great story. I'm enjoying the, the heck out of it and looking forward to talking about it some more. Hopefully those of you who are listening along with us don't mind that we're taking these little detours, but once in the book, we're going to just sort of stick it out and we might not do this for all the collections of short stories and novellas, but definitely for this book, we wanted to continue along because I think some of the themes that were talked about in the first story are continued here to some extent. And I imagine that absolutely some of the characters are obviously the same and that's going to continue throughout the book. So uh, I think it's important that at least we discuss it and it's only going to be this episode and next episode for this story. So uh, enjoy it. Yeah. And uh, one of the main themes of this story is discovering yourself. It's presented to us in the, the form of a college freshman who as a person beginning his college career, he's kind of taking the last steps of a childhood and first parts of becoming an adult, I would say. Yep. Whereas with Bobby in Low Men in Yellow Coats, it was a child taking the first steps towards adulthood. This is Pete Riley kind of at the tail end of that development. Yeah, the last steps of the carefree days of childhood where you are starting to have more and more responsibilities as well as getting what for Bobby was a broadening of his views about what was in the world around him. There's that piece as Pete mm -hmm. starts to see different people, although even within his 
group of friends at the University of Maine in the mid-60s, the people that he was meeting were a lot of people just like him to some extent. Yeah, There might have been the one-off farmer and Carol's from Connecticut, but for the most part, he's meeting other people like himself from small towns in Maine. He's also getting that encroaching real world more so than Bobby got. So the real world that was encroaching on Bobby was just a few different people and a few different scenarios where here we can start to see that there's politics coming in, there's the war coming in, there's what am I going to do about a job someday? Those are all the real life pressures that Pete's starting to fill. Although he's still in those carefree days where, hey, I could still just sort of blow this off if I want to. Yep. And so really that brings us to like trying to figure out your priorities. I think that that's one of the big pieces of discovering yourself is what's important to you and what is going to make a difference for you. And, you know, we don't really get a sense of what Pete's priorities are going to be. He knows that schoolwork's important, but he's still willing to put that aside where necessary. You know, he still has his job as a work study student that he needs to keep his scholarship, but like his priorities are fairly simple. All the other characters in this book are trying to figure that out as well. Like we see it a lot with Carol as she starts to say like I need to expand out and do what I feel is right about the war and and speaking out about that. But then other characters are doing the same sort of thing. Yeah, King presents Pete Riley as the prototypical college student who hasn't really decided what he wants to study, let alone what he wants to do with his life. We get the impression that Pete is pretty smart. Yep. He's really good with liberal arts type subjects, especially writing. So there's always that undercurrent of King's main characters being authors or budding authors or something along those lines. And and there are enough flashback type comments here that give us the impression that this is Pete Riley writing this story about his college days 35 or more years later in life because he's writing a book. Yep. We don't know if that's his profession or he's just writing in a journal or or what have you. So this is another king author main character. Through the prism of Pete not really knowing what he wants to do with himself, we can kind of see that struggle through his associates in the story. The most prominent one is probably the one that goes by Skip Kirk. Pete talks about how Skip is the first person in his family to go to college. Mm -hmm. Because of that, he is kind of stuck filling the expectations of his family that they don't have enough information to think of something beyond what they already know. So like the idea of him studying to be a teacher is okay, but studying to be like a painter or a sculptor, as Pete puts it, is something that they could never imagine. And in fact, Skip is so constrained by his own family history that his own imagination hasn't allowed him to think of that either. That's a real thing that that happened to me that I think that happens to most people who go to, to school at 18 or 17, you really haven't figured out enough about yourself. You haven't lived enough life yet to really be able to make these types of decisions, but you still have to make some. Yeah. And, and sometimes you don't make the best ones or accurate decisions because you just don't have enough information yet. Yeah. Because really as a child, what professions are you aware of? Yeah. Like astronaut, Policemen. So there's a lot of things that you see around town, right? Policemen, firemen, garbage truck, mailman. 
teachers, the obvious one you see, because you, yeah. you've been through school for 12 years leading up to college, so you're aware that there's a teacher, and you've probably heard of doctors and lawyers, but beyond that, you might know what your parents do to some extent, if you care and if you ask, but you're fairly limited in what your careers were. I was always amazed when I would talk to people, and they would talk about these jobs, and I'm like, what is an engineer? Like, I'd hear these people saying, I want to be an engineer. And I was like, what does that mean? What does that, mm-hmm. what does an engineer do? Like, is that the person who drives the train or is it something else? They build things, but not all engineers do that. So it was, it was beyond the help. So it's, it is hard. And for somebody like Skip, who I believe his family were farmers, is that correct? Yeah, I, th- I think so. They don't have a concept of what other jobs you could have and let alone make money doing something like fine arts. like. Even if you had talent, like, what does that mean? Like, I don't know anyone who could be an artist and make money and have a living. And is that a real job? Can you do that? How would you support a family? That sort of thing, right? So, Mm -hmm. but they could, they could see him becoming a teacher. Yeah. This is why I feel like education outside the home is like, like going away to college is really important or can be very helpful for personal growth because it might be the first time that you're exposed to ideas and information outside of what your family and immediate neighborhood has ever been presented to you. Those ideas and and things aren't bad or wrong. They're just limited because there's only so much information there. When Skip goes away to college, this is when he starts finding out that there's more than he was aware of before he got there. But at that point, he'd already chosen a major. He'd already chosen a field of study. And it's possible to change direction. It's possible to, to redirect your, your studies and maybe study something completely different. But that's a difficult path. It's, a, it's not easy to change when your grades are, my, in Skip and Pete's case, the things keeping you from going to war and fighting in combat. Yeah in Vietnam, right? So maybe just stick with what you got and graduate, right? And I can say that my own personal experience echoes this a lot. I was always a fan of fine arts. I like to draw and write and but I went to school for engineering because I thought it would be more practical that if I had a job as an engineer which, by the way, I did not study steering trains. Oh, that's disappointing. Happy to finally uh, let you in on that that little fact there, Sean. <laughs> Settle that mystery for you. Thank you. I discovered long before I graduated that being an engineer was something that was never going to really make me happy and that I would probably never be successful at. So I had to struggle the way Skip does in the story and i acted out in ways like skip does like you know going into people's rooms and criticizing their music collection and things like that until i found a new a new way for me to connect with what i was doing with my life and that's when things changed for me and it's a real struggle i think most of us go through it to a degree i I, very few people are sort of like at that age like have it all figured out and it works and makes sense and they never need to change. So it's, I know I'm not saying anything that's like rare or, or anything, but I, I related to a lot of what's going on in this story. Well, yeah. And I think that's a perfect connection to the previous story. We talked before about how King captured 
Bobby's life and how even though he was a 10-year-old like 20 to 30 years before you and I were 10-year-olds, the feeling that King captured in Bobby's childhood related a lot to what our childhoods were like, or at least what we remembered of them or pieces we could relate to. Mm -hmm. And same with this, even though Skip and Pete and Carol are all in college 25 years before I was in college, I do remember this stuff as well, just like you do. I I like, Mm -hmm. yeah, there was nothing... Nothing more important and more passionate than the conversations we had at two in the morning on Friday nights in our dorm rooms, right? Like those were the ones that you would get most passionate about and talking about music and seeing what people's music collections are and either being introduced to new music or being like, really, that's the music you like? I can't believe that. Where where, <laughs> where on earth did you come from? Like those were the things that I did and talked about in college. So he again, he just sort of captures that. And again, maybe he's capturing it for a um, middle-aged white guy perspective, but I totally related to it and can relate to it. I mean, obviously not worrying about my grades to avoid combat in Vietnam, but still worrying about my grades, knowing I had a big test to study for, but hey, it's more important to hang out with my buddies than than study at this point. So yeah, he captured a lot of that. For sure. One of the things that Pete says as he's talking about this is he says, time passes and everything gets bigger except us. And that's that other piece of discovering yourself and how we're talking about this real world encroaching, like everything seems bigger and much more important, but at the end of the day, we're still sort of the same person that we were. And I think Mm -hmm. that that's a little bit of what he's getting that, that quote. And I just thought that that was a a, a nice one to pull out. That you're just, you're always discovering that there's more to the world. So that's why the, everything seems to get bigger. Yep. And your problems get bigger. The world gets bigger. There's always something that is bigger than you and when you're Bobby's age at 10, you sort of think the world revolves around you. When you're Pete and you're 18, you know the world doesn't revolve around you, but it sort of revolves around your dorm. If it doesn't revolve around you personally, it revolves around yeah. your dorm or it revolves around your campus or your city. But eventually, and I think I haven't read the second half of the story yet, but we can see. Vietnam and the real world starting to encroach on this and it becomes a worry and he starts to see that. And we'll talk a little bit more about Carol's experience with that. And you can see like everything's coming in on them and it's becoming bigger and bigger, but they're still sort of the same people, especially when Pete's talking about this from an older point of view. And he realizes that what I thought was important then is different than what it is now, et cetera. So Hmm. a lot of this as we transition is nostalgia in one way or the other. So obviously Pete's nostalgia looking back on his college years. This is King also looking back as he's writing this. But what's interesting, and this sort of relates to the Dark Tower way, 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 way back in The Gunslinger, chapter one, Hmm. we talked about how Roland's story at that point was a series of nested stories, right? So yeah, we start out by Roland remembering a couple days earlier when he was at Brown's hut on the edge of the desert, mm-hmm. and he's telling Brown a story about something that happened earlier. And so there's these stories within stories within stories, and we get a little bit of that here in Hearts in Atlantis. There's a key moment, and I think it's in chapter 21. It's right before the end. And Jay, I had even suggested if I had known that that was going to be the key chapter. I might've had us end there because it really is sort of poignant. Carol talks to P 
Pete about what happened in her childhood. And Carol is obviously the Carol that we know from Low Men in Yellow Coats. And she talks about the day that Bobby saved her. When Bobby rescues Carol and carries her back to the apartment and Ted looks at her arm and, and, and tries to fix it, she realizes at that point that what stands out for her about that is that Bobby did what was right. And she says that that's the best thing that has ever happened to her in her life. Here was a boy who, even though he was smaller than the boys that assaulted her, even though she was just a friend and, and he could get in trouble, like he carried her all the way back to the, the apartment and he, he lifted her up the stairs. And um, later on, he even assaulted one of the boys with a baseball bat. She's like, he basically was standing up to a bully. He was doing what was right, even if he went about it, maybe in a not right way, but he was defending her honor. He was defending her. And that's a story within a story. And what's interesting about it is Pete remarks on it when he's looking at Carol. He can see her and he says like, she actually looks younger, but not only does she look younger, she was younger. She, he sees her eyes sort of fade back and like, she doesn't even notice he's there. And just that nested nostalgia of Carol thinking back to that time and what it meant to her. And it's done from a perspective of Pete writing in 30 years later, looking back on his college time, telling a story about something that happened 10 years earlier to someone else. So similar to what we got from Roland with the stories within stories. Yeah. You almost can get whiplash from uh, <laughs> all the all the backwards and forwards and nesting uh, nested nostalgia items. So. Yeah. And it's got to be weird for Pete because he is obviously romantically interested in Carol. Mm -hmm. One of the things that brings this up is that Pete is in a relationship, long distance relationship with his high school sweetheart. And Carol is in a long distance relationship with Sully John, right? Mm -hmm. Here's a girl who he's showing romantic interest in and she pulls out a picture and he's like, oh, that's your boyfriend. And she's like, yeah, that's my boyfriend, Sully John. But by the way, I'm going to tell you this story about this boy here also in this picture who did the most wonderful thing that ever happened in my life for me. Yeah. And you got to feel like, oh, well, not only am I second fiddle, but I might be third fiddle in this story. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Everybody's always going to be, uh, I think, held up to the standard that Bobby had in the effect. You know, I think Carol will always compare any romantic relationship she has any personal friendship that she has with the what she had as a child with bobby and sully john but mostly bobby yeah and it's yeah. interesting getting it from that perspective because in low men in yellow coats we saw it from bobby's perspective and bobby mm -hmm. would rave about how beautiful carol was and how the kiss he got from her meant so much to him and obviously the actions he takes throughout the book or throughout the story are the things he's doing for Carol and continuing to write her, et cetera. So to get it from Carol's perspective, even if it's once removed through Pete is interesting, but it, but Pete also has those feelings about Carol. I don't get the sense, and maybe you disagree with me here. Carol is not an entirely well fleshed out character up until this point. Mm -hmm. She's not a totally generic character, but she's idealized by the two king stand-ins in in this book so far the bobby stand-in from when he was a child sort of idealizes carol as the as this perfect girl and pete's doing the same thing here 
Yeah, and she does get much more fleshed out here, but we're still getting her story secondhand yep. from the narrator, who is yet another guy. Yeah. So it's like we we don't really get, or I should say, Carol never really has a chance to connect directly to the reader. This is as close as she's come. It might have been nice to have this story from her perspective somehow. Well, there's three more stories in the book. Maybe we'll eventually get one from Carol's perspective. I don't know. Moderately fascinating. Jade, the book or the store, the book and the story are called Hearts in Atlantis. Mm -hmm. And the reason for this is the game of hearts that has taken over Chamberlain Hall. Yeah. And taken over is like putting it mildly. This becomes a form of like mass hysteria and insanity to a degree. And it's certainly presented to us as a form of addiction. Mm. It's an addiction that's also an avoidance. You know, like if somebody were addicted to, say, heroin, they don't take heroin because it's easier than studying. They take <laughs> heroin because it turns on all of the pleasure receptors in your brain at once. And basically, it's easier than the whole rest of your life, as, as I understand it. I've never actually tried heroin. so. So there's that kind of addiction. So this is a little different, but in the same way, it, it says it's as destructive potentially as any type of drug because they can't stop playing. Pete can't stop playing this game and he knows the risk that he's taking on. Everyone around him who cares is telling him, stop playing cards and get back to studying. He's telling that to himself. Yep. But... He just can't find a way to break out of it. And they are all stuck in this. They all know it and they all keep doing it. And so you have to wonder, is it just because it's easier or it's more fun or it's more entertaining than studying? Of course it is. Yep. Hitting the books is not a good time in and of itself, but it's addiction, but it also feels like avoidance. It's like I, I, it's it's procrastination taken to the nth degree. Absolutely. And the avoidance kind of it's turtles all the way down too, right? It's it's like the game is a way to avoid schoolwork, and school and college itself is sort of a way to avoid life. And college is also a way to avoid the war. Yeah. There, there's a lot going on here. I think King is pretty crafty with his construction. And even with his naming choices here, the choice of the game of hearts feels almost random. Like he could have just said poker in Atlantis or something like that. And then the choice of the song Atlantis and making that, you know, somehow meaningful to the time and the place and the atmosphere and the way that the people who were Pete's age in that time, how they kind of connected to the world. Mm hmm. Yeah, poker in Atlantis doesn't doesn't have that ring to it. No, definitely not. Or Baccarat in Atlantis. <laughs> Twenty one in Atlantis. You're you're absolutely right. So the the reason that they get involved in Hearts seems to differ for some of the boys. Mm -hmm. It starts off with, "Hey, we're going to make a few extra dollars so we can go to the movie theater later and pay for a mm -hmm. date, actually, or maybe get the popcorn." Yep. To Ronnie, who's just like, "I want to." take these two rubes for all they got. Like it's, it's almost a power thing for him. 
Mm-hmm. Some of the other kids are just like, hey, everyone else is doing it. Why don't I? So you see all these different reasons for getting into the addiction. And then it becomes a, we just can't stop. It's not about the money anymore. It's not about the power. It's just, we're all in this room together. I can only imagine what a common room of a bunch of men <laughs> playing cards all night long and eating crappy food can smell like and be like and it's just not pleasant but they're just continuing to do it with no regard for anything like you said whether it's schoolwork whether it's somebody has needle pointed 2.5 as this is the grade average you need to keep to not get kicked Mm -hmm. out of school and they try to avoid it and then one boy drops out before even he gets his grades right like yeah it's like October. He's like, I'm taking my trunk and going. I got to get out of here. Hearts is going to kill me. Somebody else moves to another dorm, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's the only way they, they can get away from it. And just this whole idea of this addiction. And there's other pieces of addiction here too. So you get Pete's roommate, whose name is? Nate Hoppenstand. Yes, Nate Hoppenstand. So Nate does not get involved at all. With the hearts game. He never plays. He's addicted to his schoolwork. He wants to be a dentist and he is always heads down in his dentistry pre-work, I would imagine, as well as his crappy music that everyone makes fun of him for. Uh-huh. <laughs> and and we know that he becomes a dentist, right? Like mm-hmm. from Pete's perspective, he grows up and he gets a wife and he has three kids and he's got a dental practice and everything goes the way it does. And we don't know what's going to happen with all these other kids who are playing hearts but we don't get a sense that it's going to be that so nate's got his addiction we don't know what's going on with stokely yet but he seems he's not involved in the hearts game he sort of looks down on it but at the same time he's right there on the periphery and he seems to have his own issues i know it's probably more of the time than anything else but there's the cigarette addiction that seems to be prevalent everyone's smoking all the time and and around there so all these addictions keep coming up not an uncommon theme for for King to have this addiction. It's just interesting that the one he picks is a card game called Hearts, mm-hmm. which whether that's like you said, it's probably some of it's literary. Like I'm going to call it Hearts, but I also wonder some of it might be regional. When I was in upstate New York, everyone played a game called Pitch, which was another you know Trump type game like like Hearts, but it was a big thing here in Ohio. It's euchre. And I'm sure in different areas of the country, there's different card games that everyone played. But we played pitch all the time when I was in high school, after school, before school, in between classes. Um, We weren't quite addicted to it for money like these guys were, but it's easy to get caught up in that stuff when everyone else is doing it. Yeah. One more angle about avoidance is that the nature of it here from Pete's perspective is that it's all artificial. It's all temporary. College is temporary. Yeah. And if you flunk out, it's even more so. (laughs) Procrastinating your studies for the night to play hearts for hours and hours is also temporary. Eventually, that work needs to get done. That studying needs to happen. So if you put it off and you put it off and you put it off, it's just temporary. Eventually, either the work or the consequences of not doing the work are going to catch up with you. Yeah. And and even the games themselves, the the game itself is fleeting. It's it's quick, it's fast, it's it's simple. But it's because of that, it is it's like there's always a chance to start a, a, the next game and the next game and the next game. And it's kind of like how you can end up binging a whole season of a show on Netflix because if you take no action, 
the easiest thing is the next episode starts playing. Right. You have to actually pick up the remote and do something to stop the binge. And here, the game is so fast and so and so brief. It's not like a game of of chess that could last twenty minutes or or even longer. I guess if you're really taking your time with it, this is like bang, 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 and you're next round, right? Right. And you know that these guys are playing fast. They're not taking their time and you know thinking about which which suit to open on next. I think the the avoidance, the worst part of this avoidance is that none of it is really avoiding anything. It's just an illusion of avoidance, and that just makes it all all that much worse. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jay, even though this is not a direct Dark Tower story, I can't help but think that there are a few Dark Tower thinnies. Oh, yeah, there are some thinnies. Let's get into them. The story starts off with an inscription. 1966. Man, we just couldn't stop laughing. And that made me think of Cuthbert. Oh, yeah. Didn't he die laughing? And the stakes here are not quite as dire as the Battle of Jericho Hill. Uh, but these guys, if they flunk out of school, they're going to Vietnam. And if you go to Vietnam in 1966, you're going to be in combat. Yep. So... If you can't stop laughing and you flunk out of school, maybe you'll be just like Cuthbert and you'll die laughing. Yes. So this was another reason why I thought we should have stopped on chapter 21 because that's the end of that chapter. So Carol and Pete go out to his car and pull off his Goldwater bumper sticker. Mm-hmm. She can't believe that here's this guy who supports the uh, Republican conservative candidate. Well, he did inherit the car from his older brother. That's true. Yeah. But she couldn't continue dating him with the, with that on his car, so they had to go peel it off, and <laughs> they just couldn't stop laughing. What else you got? You seem to find more of these as the Dark Tower expert than I did, so a bunch of them jumped out to you. The dorm RA or proctor, or I forget yeah. what exactly his role was. David Deary Dearborn is presented to us as a real uh, pain in the ass to all the other characters but his last name's dearborn which is the same last name that roland used ah. when he was in disguise during the story of magus that's right in book four so keep going yeah keep going in the beginning of the story pete is recounting how the game of hearts and their addiction to it to playing it led to many of the students flunking out of school for various reasons and at various times, but by the end of the first semester, he says that there were 19 victims of hearts. Ooh, 19? 19, you say. Interesting. Mm-hmm. That is quite a bit. Like, I don't know what your freshman dorm situation was like, but I know that there weren't 19 people who dropped out between first and second semester. I don't even know if there were one or two that dropped out by the end of the year. I think it was probably in the range of like two to three by the first year, but that's, yeah, not 19. No, 19 is a lot. There's a, a thinny that's a little bit thin for me, but uh, so it's a thin thinny. Uh, <laughs> Pete's girlfriend, Anna Marie Susie, when Pete was trying to remember her phone number, he couldn't remember if it was 8146 or 8164. But either way, those numbers add up to 19. Ah, there you go. 
For you young ones, back in the day, you had to know people's phone numbers. You couldn't just ask for somebody. You couldn't just fat finger their the picture of their face uh, <laughs> uh, on your on your smartphone screen. And in fact, another sort of timely piece of this is that when he calls the other dorm to look for Carol, he has to call a sort of dorm phone that's like public phone and ask around for for his girlfriend because nobody it's had, like being in prison not only did you not have your own phone but your room didn't have its own phone you just had to use the one that was probably in the common room so one that i found interesting jay is that as pete is talking about his addiction to hearts he says the lounge at chamberlain three had become my jupiter mm. he just felt the gravitational pull pulling him in to play hearts all the time and this is a very similar phrase to what Stephen King says about the Dark Tower, that the Dark Tower series had become his Jupiter, and that's why all of his books sort of revolve around it. And I, this was written before he brings that up in book five of the Dark Tower series, and I wondered if he has already been thinking about the Dark Tower as part of his Jupiter, or if he came up with this line for Hearts in Atlantis and then borrowed it when he got to book five, but just sort of an interesting connection there. Yeah, it's like a, a meta-thinny. A meta-thinny. That's right. The meta Dark Tower thingy. We're not going to come up with our own music for that, are we? <laughs> you just blew my mind. So finally, both you and I noticed when Pete and Carol are talking about politics, Pete says that lost pet posters were not political. And of course, that's sort of a random thing to bring up is lost pet posters, but it has a direct connection, obviously, to the Dark Tower and Low Men in Yellow Coats. And Pete's really sort of wrong, right? Like even maybe part of this is that everything is political in some way and even lost pet posters are political. I mean, whether they're political in terms of national politics and presidential elections, not so much, but they do have an impact. It's the lost pet poster that leads Bobby's mom to turn in Ted and really cost him his freedom and change Bobby's life. Even something as simple as a lost pet poster does have a political component to it. And I would say that, in fact, everything has a political component to it if you think about it in such terms. Yeah. Anything that has consequence or impact ultimately has politics. I wanted to add to that, that it wasn't really Pete making this statement about pet posters. I think he was recounting the fact that a city ordinance had been passed, that specific things were deemed political. Hmm and therefore couldn't be posted anymore. But other things that were deemed like innocuous from a political standpoint, such as used car things and uh, as a long list of items, including lost pet posters, were apparently not political. It was almost like saying it sarcastically, like, like he wasn't necessarily taking a stance as to whether or not a pet poster is political, but he was saying the the man had decided that this one this one thing about Vietnam protests was political and therefore there was a post no bills type of city ruling anything else if you wanted to sell your car sell your boat find your lost pet that's all still good yeah but as we find out there are ways around that right yeah even lost pet posters can have other consequences and other meanings behind what you do it and there's a little bit of that with Stokely's peace symbol, which in fact is just a semaphore for NND, which is nuclear disarmament, right? Mm -hmm. They turn it into the peace symbol, which is new to everyone in 1966. 
there's this way of taking existing things and giving them alternate meanings. All right, well, let's move on to some of our fun stuff. All right. I love fun stuff. One thing that made me kind of giggle was that Nate Hoppenstand's girlfriend, Cindy, and dog, Rinty, both sported identical grins. <laughs> and when Pete tells us about that, he said that it was surreal. So I'm I'm picturing these two, uh, one human and one canine with the same grin. And uh, I'm I'm having a hard time with it. I also don't think I've ever heard anybody name a dog Rinty. I guess it's like Rin Tin Tin or something or Ron Tan Tan if you're French. But Rinty, I mean, is that like the nickname for Rin Tin or? Yeah, maybe. I, yeah, that's an unusual one for me. So one thing I wanted to point out, maybe not so much fun stuff, but the fact that there, other than Carol, are not a lot of women in this story. It is very male heavy. Just this slight undercurrent of misogyny. So if you've never played hearts before, you don't want to get stuck with the the queen because the queen of spades is worth 13 points. And so you don't want to get stuck with the points and that can really screw you over. And throughout the story, they're saying things like, we're hunting the bitch because they're trying to smoke that out. So all these boys and then this sort of hunting the bitch thing, a little bit of misogyny there. Not so much fun stuff, but just something interesting to point out. Yeah, I mean, Carol is not the only female character, and I think one other woman or two other women have a a speaking line, but basically they are just interacting as a go-between, you know, with Pete to get to Carol, you know, and that's it. Yeah. This story is not passing the Bechdel test. No, not even close. As we said earlier, Carol doesn't even really directly connect to us as the reader. Yeah. There's a really great line in this book. This is one that I had uh, had a page dog-eared in, in my copy of the, the book for a long, long time, which is, perfect eloquence is, I think, almost always mute. If brevity is the uh, source of wit, apparently, if you can abbreviate to zero, then you will have all you also will have achieved perfect eloquence. I have a perfect comment in response to that. It's pretty eloquent of you. Thank you. So at one point in the the story, Skip creates this like hot dog man that that's like this really crass thing and everybody's laughing about it. And Pete re- remarks that anything with the power to make you laugh over 30 years later isn't a waste of time. Something like that is very close to immortality. And I could not agree more. I have had a few belly laughs like that over things that happened nearly 30 years ago, and I will never forget them. And they, some of them are cornerstones to my closest friendships. And it is that power of intense laughter of something that was so truly funny and so monumentally like entertaining to a large group of people that it really is a form of immortality. I would even broaden that to say it's not even just laughter, but maybe even art in general, Yeah, which is a little bit of what King's getting at, I think, with some of this stuff. When we talked about Skip earlier, that's where he had could have had the most impact. Mm-hmm. Not in whatever job he's going to end up in or whatever studies he's, he's doing, but 
that ability to connect with people. Yeah. Whether it's sculptures made out of mashed potatoes and sausages or whether it's uh, some sort of sculptor in real life or some so some art or some writing or something along those lines. Yeah, we learn that he does something in uh, later years of a, he makes a paper mache Vietnamese family and sets it on fire as part of a protest. And that's something that not many people would have the creativity to think of. Yeah. Lots of people might have the, the conviction to do that, but to also have that artistic part of it as a main element in, in his protest, that's somebody who should probably study fine arts and learn how to hone those skills that he has so innately. One more thing that I, that I had for fun stuff is some of the names in this book, <laughs> they're just sort of hilarious of their own accord. And I think the best example of that is Nate Hoppenstand. His last name is literally Hop and Stand. Yeah. What was King doing when he came up with that name? I mean, it, I'm sorry to any of our listeners whose name might actually be Hop and Stand, <laughs> but I don't know. Like, I've never met somebody in real life with that last name. So nope. I don't know if that's even a real name. And I don't, <laughs> I don't mean to say that it's a, a silly name. I just think it's like there's something that if you just think about the construction of it in English, it's kind of amazing. Right. Yeah. And, and the other good example of that is that there's Ronnie Malenfant. And if you translate Malenfant in, into French, which being in Maine, there's a lot of French you know, heritage there and a lot of names, that translates to bad child. Which fits him perfectly. Yeah. Like basically his, he is what his name means. Yes. Right on the nose. And <laughs> I just like, I think King was having, uh, he was having some fun naming these characters. And then after that, after the first few, I think that that sort of petered out and uh, he just started giving them like less, less, uh, less interesting or less obviously entertaining names. The other thing that both you and I noticed was that our narrator is not named until five or six chapters in. Yeah. So we don't learn Pete's name. And I will tell you the truth that for that first chapter or two, the thought had crossed my mind, is this Bobby? Mm. It's not clear who's telling the story. And we knew at some point Bobby wanted to become a writer and he obviously got older. And if you're reading this book, and this book is not set up as a book of short stories. This book is set up as just it just says Hearts in Atlantis, new fiction is how it's written on the front, and there's not really story breaks like you might be used to in some of King's other fiction. So like it just sort of rolls from 1960 to 1966, and why not think like oh maybe this is just the next version of the character? So mm -hmm. just another interesting thing about names that we don't learn about Pete until a little bit in. I thought that. Perhaps King might be going for the choice of never naming mm. the narrator, right? Which is also a, a a valid approach. Yeah, it would be interesting to have him kind of skirt around that when other characters address the narrator. Or, or that's basically how we learn Pete's names. The first time we see it on the page is somebody else says, "Hey, Pete," or something like that. Yeah, I think Ronnie tries to get him involved in Hearts game, right? Yeah. Hey, Pete, we got to take these two rubes for all their monies. The last thing I'll, I'll uh, add to the fun stuff is that Stokely Jones 
aka Rip Rip, is constantly repeating Rip Rip, Rip Rip, Rip Rip under his breath. And that reminded me a lot of Bobby's neighbor, Mrs. O'Hara, who had a dog named Bowser. And the dog was constantly barking, Roop Roop, Roop Roop, Roop Roop. Mm. It was a probably not meaningful connection, but I think that there's King likes echoes, and especially with the Dark Tower, uh, echoes are important yeah. and meaningful. So if Bowser the dog is saying roop, 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 and Stokely Jones is saying rip, 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 I wonder if there's going to be another echo of that in perhaps a later story to look for. Pete has already said that when he tells this story he in, in one of the first chapters, he says, I'm not sure if this story is about me or if this story is about Carol Gerber, or if this story is about Stokely Jones. And that's interesting to me because halfway through this story, we have not gotten a lot of Stokely yet. He's been on the periphery. So I have a feeling like he's probably going to come to prominence later in the book and we'll find out more about the Rip Rip and who he is and what he means to the story and what effect he's going to have on Pete ultimately if if Pete thinks that he this story might be about him. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing that's moderately fascinating. Yes, it is moderately fascinating. All right. Well, we'll have to tune in next episode to find that out because that's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our contact information is available in the show notes. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com and our Twitter handle is at twoguysdarktower. You can also find us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash twoguysdarktower or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash twoguysdarktower. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes. Next episode, join us as we finish the story Hearts in Atlantis, parts 23 through 44 found in the book Hearts in Atlantis. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McCurr. Thanks for listening. We're both sweater lookers. Neither one of us is Chinese.